Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. Welcome to this podcast where we'll be talking about our new book, The Rutledge Handbook of Global Development, which is due out February 2022. But before we get underway, here in Australia, when people gather to share knowledge, it is customary to acknowledge and pay respects to the traditional custodians and country of the meeting place. So I want to do that here first before talking about the book, acknowledging the knowledge holders of the many countries of this land and recognise the stories held and those that continue to be held by First Nation peoples, country and ancestors. I'm talking from the lands of the Waramai and Awabakal peoples in Mullumbimba, Newcastle, on the east coast of Australia, and I acknowledge the custodians and elders of this place, past, present and emerging, and country itself. I also want to acknowledge that the land that came to be called Australia was never ceded. And as a non-Aboriginal person living and working on unceded lands, I have a responsibility to participate where I can in the ongoing struggle for sovereignty for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Hi, I'm Paul Hodge, Dr. Paul Hodge from the Discipline of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of Newcastle. A co-editor of the book we'll be talking about today. I've got three fellow co-editors here with me. Dr. Kieran Sims, lecturer in development studies at James Cook University. Dr. Susan Engel from Politics and International Studies at the University of Wollongong, and Dr. Nahiro Nakamaru from the Division of Geography, Earth Science and Environment at the University of the South Pacific. I'll start this podcast with the lead editor of the book, Kieran Sims. Kieran, could you tell us a little bit about the handbook? Where did the motivation come from for the project? And what were you hoping to achieve? Thanks, Paul. The initial motivation for the handbook really came from wanting to produce a book that brought together research, learning and teaching and practice. Many of us at work in development move across these three categories in all sorts of ways and often in ways that are quite blurred. So undertaking research is often a process of learning which can also include teaching through supervision Learning and teaching is very much for me, uh, and I'm sure many others, a form of development practice. And through placements and internships, students are often simultaneously undertaking learning and practice. And of course, practice produces new forms of learning, new teaching resources, and so on. So those fluid and overlapping categories that are sort of in constant play with, with one another, they motivated me to want to produce a handbook that spoke to this kind of interplay so that was the initial motivation but then as the project developed and as the rest of the editorial team came on board a number of other important aspects came into play as well so for example this being a handbook of global development rather than international development and the related diverse representation of authorship that the handbook offers So to talk a bit about global development and the global development paradigm, I think this handbook speaks to that paradigmatic shift 
uh, in various ways. Chapters in the book don't only gaze at the global south, attention is also given to challenges in the global north and to global challenges that transcend those binaries of north-south, developed, developing and so on. Similarly, the book has a broad guiding focus around social justice and sustainability rather than the more technocratic and econocentric perspectives that often dominated the international development paradigm. And attention is also given to the increasingly polycentric nature of global development flows, such that South-South and South-North cooperation are better recognised alongside North-South relations. And it's not just in the content that I think the book reflects a more global analysis, but also in its authorship. We have contributors from all over the world and ensuring that kind of diverse representation in authorship was a really important aim of the book. And having that geographically dispersed editorial team as well as contributors helped with this aspiration to include perspectives and contributions from some of the less commonly represented countries and regions. Having that wide geographical spread of contributors also meant that the handbook offers multiple different ways of thinking about and doing development with many chapters challenging in different ways those dominant understandings and modes of doing development. The other thing I wanted to mention that makes the book, I think, distinct from many other handbooks is each chapter including a section on development pedagogy and practice. So key global challenges aren't just discussed, but ways forward are suggested through learning and teaching and through development work. And that too was always one of the guiding motivations for the book. I think it's a really important feature of the book and hopefully one that will make it valuable for educators and for practitioners as well as for an academic audience. So I think for me, they were some of the leading motivations, Paul. So much, Karen. Um, let's hear now from Susan. Uh, and anything to elaborate on uh, in terms of your take on this particular project? Anything that drew you to this project in particular? Thanks, Paul. Like Kieran, I was drawn by the global scope. The aim not to posit any simplistic dichotomy between challenges in the global north and the global south or the minority and majority worlds. For me, uh, the fact that shortly after the introduction chapters, that one of the earliest chapters is on deglobalization, written by the great scholar activist Walden Bellow, is a key testament to that, that project. It was also a chance to work with a great team of international scholars, all committed to human emancipation, from the wonderful editorial team to the authors that I got to meet and interact with. For me personally, as a political economist, it was important to ensure there were critical political economy approaches in the book. So that was something I hope to add. And now I'm really looking forward to reading more broadly across the many wonderful sections. Thank you, Susan. And Nahiro, what drew you to the project? I wonder if you could uh, reflect on this project, what it means for you and elaborate on some of the ideas um, behind that. Yes, hello. Actually, I'm joining from Fiji, a small Pacific island country, which is often underrepresented in this kind of book. So I think my physical location itself makes this book 
distinct from other kinds of books because most of this kind of books previously published were often edited by the, those who are located in the minority world or global north. So when I was invited to join to the editorial group, I felt very honored. Then I also thought this is a very good opportunity for those who are based on a small island country to speak up, then raise a voice to be included in this kind of big volume. Thank you, Nehiro, uh, and thank you each of you for reflecting on what brought you into the project uh, and elaborating a little bit on that. I'd like to move into another question here for Kieran. Could you tell us a little bit about the content structure of the book? It's a, it's a little unique. You've already outlined some of the specific additions it makes in terms of pedagogy and other things that uh, other handbooks don't have. Um, I wonder if you could share a little bit about the structure. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Paul. So the handbook's made up of five sections uh, and a total of around 61 chapters plus the introduction. It's a really multidisciplinary volume. Contributing authors come from a whole range of different disciplines and also different uh, professional backgrounds. The first section of the handbook around changing development configurations really sets out some of the key context for development debates about the structures and configurations that shape the global development sector. And so it includes chapters on themes like uh, retro liberalism, on debt, on aid systems, NGO partnerships, and as Susan's mentioned before, on deglobalization, along with a number of other topics. The second section around sustainability and development unpacks some of the big debates and influential concepts in sustainability and in sustainability and development. And it reflects on how these could translate into potential pathways for more sustainable futures. It includes chapters on things like planetary boundaries, mass extinction, extractivism and food systems. Section three of the book around inequality and development offers a number of different entry points for examining relationships between poverty, inequality, equity and development. And it has chapters on things like poverty debates, a uh, really interesting chapter on tax avoidance and financial systems, land grabbing uh, and gender inequities. The fourth section of the book, Game Changes in Global Development, explores some of the key challenges which may shape or change the game of future development trajectories. So it includes, for example, chapters on COVID-19, the global pandemic, on disability inclusivity, on housing, on global value chains and on forced migration and asylum seeking. And then finally, the final section around reimagining futures, and of course this is uh, your section with now Hero, Paul, it looks at a range of practices, orientations and methodologies that current and future people working in development might do well to consider and take on as part of a reimagining of development futures beyond what we have come to know. So it includes chapters on topics such as storytelling and poetry, on community-based learning, on community economies, and, and a really fascinating focus in a number of the chapters on, on decolonisation and what that means and how we might take that forward. Um, so it's a really, really valuable 
an interesting way to close off the book, I think. Excellent. Thank you, Karen. Um, and thanks for that overarching take on the structure of the book. And I wonder if we could go a little deeper now into a couple of the sections. We've got Susan and Nahira, of course, uh, who are going to share some uh, extra sort of insights in terms of the sections that they were editing as part of this broader Rutledge handbook. So for uh, Susan, could you yeah, elaborate a little bit on, on your section, I guess a little bit about that. I had the great pleasure, Paul, of editing the section on changing development configurations, part one with Kieran. And um, Kieran's already said a bit about the aims, about setting up some of the debates about the global factors that are the global concepts and theories shaping development, but also the key actors. So I might just touch a bit on a couple of the sort of, I think, more interesting. Oh, I think the all the chapters are wonderful, but a couple of my favourites. I particularly like the retroliberalism chapter by Murray and Overton, which is an argument that we've shifted uh, again away from the straight neoliberal approach to development influenced by new structural economics out of Latin America and new institutional economics out of China and a re-emphasis on infrastructure in development towards a retro-liberal development paradigm. I don't actually fully agree with, with Murray and Overton's conclusions there. I think they perhaps have overstated the degree of change relative to the continuing dynamics of neoliberalism and financialization, but it's a wonderful chapter. There are some great chapters that highlight this lack of dichotomy between the North and South. Uh, Etienne Nell's chapter on regions and the development of regions focuses actually mostly on the global North, but in unequal spatial development between different regions is a challenge all over the world. Um, my own chapter with Patrick Bond looking at multilateral development banks has a similar focus in that there are in fact 30 multi, over 30 multilateral development banks uh, located in the North and the South. And the World Bank has been challenged in size by the European Investment Bank, for example, that operates mostly in Europe, Eastern Europe, and occasionally in other, in other parts as well. But they all operate with similar structures and systems. And the chapter on philanthropy by Lindsay Magui is a really notable one, I think, just given the recent developments with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, with Melinda Gates announcing she's going to pull out of that one. That shows us what a very contemporary space we're operating in and a rapidly changing space and the challenges that are still going ahead. Terrific. Thank you so much, Susan. I wonder if we could now hear from Nahiro on uh, your section, which closes the book, if you like, that part five. Um, would you like to share some reflections on that, Nahiro? Yes, thank you, Paul. Our section title is Reimagining Futures. Then I and uh, Paul and I worked together to edit this section. In this section, authors offer a range of practices, orientations, and methodologies that might do well development for the future beyond what we have come to know. Each chapter makes a case for why current development practices in the diverse context may need to change and what forms these changes can take. 
and how it can be reflected in pedagogy. Indeed, I believe that our section authors are already practicing those kind of different types of pedagogies for development future. Actually, readers can see different styles of pedagogies in each chapter. Then I want to introduce a few chapters from the about 10 chapters in our section. Our section starts with the chapter by Michelle Bishop and Laurent Tainan, who adapted indigenous autoethnography to imagine development futures by adapting relational perspectives through ego and grandmother and granddaughter stories. I think this comes from the Aboriginal legends. And authors invite readers to think about how these stories might be meaningful in their own lives. And imagining the world beyond the human perspective, the chapter teaches that human survival is deeply bound to the well-being of the country. The next chapter is by Tor Muriaina, who is actually someone then teaching at the University of the South Pacific. And his chapter emphasizes the holistic nature of teaching and learning informed by Pacific culture and languages. He questions development priorities that continue to advocate and value English and French proficiency to the detriment of oral traditions of Pacific Islanders. Then chapter attempts to address the dilemma between external development educational priorities, like school-based Western-style education, and Pacific Islander aspirations to strengthen local cultures, including languages and knowledge transfer. Then another interesting chapter was written by Paul, together with Bernard and Kenna, who are, I believe they are custodians. Then this chapter shares their attempts to teach undergraduate development studies by adapting two custodian-led pedagogies. Then custodians are, I believe, Aboriginal background. Then I also contributed one chapter together with my colleague who is actually teaching chemistry and putting effort on capacity development on, in science in Pacific Island country. In our section, actually, not all authors are in a traditional sense best fit to write something about development in social science field. Actually, Paul's chapter also custodians contribute. My chapter, chemist contributes. So they are totally different uh, from the other types of books on development. Then my co-author, Krishna Kotra, I believe he never thought about how development, development practice can change, but what he has been doing, like capacity development in science in Pacific Island country through collaboration, and what he's doing exactly fits with the concept of not just our section, but entire book, Reimagining Chucha and uh, Global Development. And uh, we are trying to show how such changes like in development practices and pedagogies can be practiced, then try to think about the change together with the reader. 
Thank you, Susan Nehiro, for reflecting on the specifics and particular chapters that really resonated with you as part of um, collaboration uh, in, in each of these sections. I, I want to close now uh, this podcast with a, with a question and coming back to the lead editor of the book to finish. Kieran, um, is there anything else you'd like to add about this Rutledge Handbook of Global Development? Thanks, Paul. This is the first handbook that I've worked on and it provided me with a really great opportunity to work with new colleagues uh, and also some existing colleagues from around the world, including scholars whose work I've admired um, for quite a long time from, from my undergraduate studies in many cases. It was also quite an ambitious project that was undertaken during the challenges that have emerged from the pandemic. So I really just want to take this opportunity to again thank the full editorial team for all of their hard work over the last couple of years and to also thank all of the contributors to the volume. I've been told that new research collaborations have already been emerging as a result of the project and I think that's just a really um, fantastic outcome. So, so thanks again to you, Paul, to you, Susan, to Nahiro, and to everybody else that's been um, involved in this project. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you, Kieran. Can I just throw in a big thank you to Kieran and also for people reading the book, if you have any questions or comments, please get back to us. Please send us an email. They're in the, our contact details are there. And we love to hear from people and their experiences with the book. Thanks. That reminds me, actually, um, I just saw on the Routledge website that next to the title it says first edition. So Paul and Susan and Nahiro, uh, take a rest because we might be back in a few years' time. (laughs) 